I cannot stand horror movies. I mean, I just can't. I can't stand horror movies. I love movies. I truly do. I love action, sci-fi, comedy, fantasy. Throw a little romance in there, sure. But I can't stand horror movies. And I know what you're thinking, Perry, it's because you're scared. You're just a little kid at heart. You're scared of horror movies. That's not true. When I was eight, I did watch a horror movie that terrified me. I had nightmares for two weeks, and until I was 15, I didn't watch another scary movie. But, but I'm over that now, and I promise the reason that I don't really like horror movies now isn't because I'm scared. The reason that I don't really like horror movies is because of the foolish decision-making by the main characters. And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a girl running for her life on the second floor of a house. She's being chased by a killer. She runs down the stairs. She looks out the front door. There's a car outside. It has a full tank of gas. The keys are in it. It's already running. And instead of running to the car and driving away, she runs down the stairs into the basement. What are you doing? Girl, what is running through your mind? Or there will be a guy in a warehouse being chased by a killer. He runs into a room. There's hammers, axes, saws, all these things he could defend himself with. And he grabs a moldy pineapple out of the trash can. Seriously, seriously, what are you doing? (laughs) And I get it. It's for entertainment. If our characters acted rationally, then horror movies would be over within five minutes. We understand that. It still irks me, though. But here are the decisions that get me the most, the decisions that just drive me up a wall, even worse than someone trying to hide in the cellar or someone trying to defend their life with a pineapple. The decisions that get me the most are when the main characters choose to follow some sketchy person that they just met. Somebody will show up on the scene, and mind you, bodies have been popping up around town. The main characters know they're being hunted, and a sketchy person will show up on the scene and say, hey guys, I know where we can hide. The abandoned insane asylum, follow me. And the main characters do. Or the main characters are hiding, or they're on the run, and someone shows up. Hey, hey guys, I know what we can do. You've never met me before, but follow me. I know a shortcut through the cemetery. Come on, come on. And they do, and it always leaves me screaming at the television. What are you doing? Why are you following them? But that's not just something that we see in horror movies, is it? No, in, in real life, we understand the idea that there are some people that you just shouldn't follow. It's why we teach our children that lesson. Teachers tell students in their class, hey, just because Johnny did something doesn't mean you should. If Johnny jumped off a bridge, would you follow him off? Of course not. It's why parents tell their little tots, hey, don't hang out with those other kids. They're, they're a bad influence. They'll get you into trouble. Don't follow them. But we also teach our children about role models. We teach them about people of good character because we recognize in society there are people you shouldn't follow, but there are also people that you should. So today, we are starting a new series that we're calling Trailblazer, following Jesus like Peter did. Now, Peter was a guy who had his ups and downs. He really did. Uh, He spoke a lot of times where he probably should have been quiet. He was quiet a lot of times where he probably should have spoke. He made some mistakes, and we see that. But at the end of the day, Peter was a disciple of Christ. And that's not something that frustrates us and leaves us screaming, why are you following him? It's actually something that we can applaud Peter for. And so in this series, we are going to take a look at Peter's life. We're going to break down some of the key decisions that he makes, some of the key moments where we see him choosing to follow Jesus. We're going to try to follow his model that he sets before us to see how we too can dedicatedly follow Christ. And so if you have your Bibles with you today, we're going to be reading out of Luke chapter 5. 
That's Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we have free ones in the back, so it's okay. The words will also be up here on the screen behind me. But at this point in time, where we pick up in Luke 5, we see that Jesus has already begun his earthly ministry. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. He's begun to, to go around to different synagogues. He's preaching. He's teaching. And he has been rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, but he has gained a little bit of a following in some other areas. And so we pick up in Luke chapter 5, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, that's Peter, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water, go a little further out, and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night, and we haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat, come, come help us. And they came, and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. Or as we often hear and know from the Matthew and Mark account, Come, follow me. From now on, you will fish for people. And so they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and follow him. So like I said, Matthew and Mark, they both have their own accounts of the same story, but theirs are a lot shorter. If you just read their accounts, you might think Jesus was taking a nice seaside stroll. He saw some random people and said, hey guys, come on. They don't include much detail. But thankfully, Luke gives us some more details to help us begin to unpack what's actually happening here. He explains some things, and we're able to see the events that are transpiring. And for Luke, it was pretty important to include this. It was pretty important to include this miracle of catching fish. And I think that's because this miracle was a turning point for Peter. In the book of John, we actually find that Peter already knew Jesus. This was not his first encounter with Jesus. In John, we find that Peter's brother, Andrew, had came to him one day and said, Peter, you've got to come meet this guy. We found him. We found the guy. We found the Messiah. It's Jesus. Come on, come meet him. And so Andrew and Peter, they go, they meet Jesus. They talk with Jesus. They hang out for him for a couple of days. And then they go back to, to doing their own thing. So at the start of the story, we see that, or we know, rather, that Peter knows Jesus. But I say that it's a turning point because it's after this miraculous catching of fish and Jesus saying, follow me, that Peter decides, sure, I'm going to leave everything behind and commit my life to following you. And so through including this story, Luke shows us three things that happen to Peter here. And I believe that these are the same three things that we must do in order to follow Jesus. And the first one is this. In order to follow Jesus, we must recognize who he is. We must recognize who he is. When I was in high school, I was a big, big fan of the video game Call of Duty. 
I spent hours a day playing it. My grandparents are here. They could attest to that. Uh, they thought that it was very unhealthy. It probably was. But I loved the game. I loved Call of Duty. I was also very, uh, very invested in the competitive scene, the professional scene. If you don't know, there are people who actually get paid six figures to play Call of Duty. I know, parents, it's crazy, but it happens. I know. <laughs> so the next time your parent is playing too much video games and you tell them to get off, maybe they're the next professional player. Just saying. I got you guys, youth group. Um, I'm defending y'all. It's my job. Uh, but so these, these players, these professionals, are like the equivalent of LeBron James, Steph Curry, in their craft. If an average teenager tried to play them, they would just get destroyed. And so one day, I'm in a voice party with my friends. We're just hanging out, talking, and they join a game. They start playing, and they begin to tell me how there's a player on the other team who's pretty good. They're not doing too well against them. And as the game progresses, they actually get really frustrated. They start to get mad, and they say, we can't do anything. This other player is phenomenal. Like, we are getting destroyed. I was very curious, and so I joined the game, and I saw the name of the player that they were playing against, and they had no clue what the name was, but I knew it was the name of a professional player, someone who has won the Call of Duty World Championships. So that's the equivalent of the Super Bowl for my sports fans. He's won it three times. He basically has three Super Bowl rings in Call of Duty. And <laughs> he's made millions playing it. And my friends had no idea. They knew he was good. They could tell we're getting destroyed, we're going to lose. But they did not recognize just who it was that they were going up against. Here we find in the first half of the story that Peter knows Jesus. He's hung out with him before. He's talked to him. But he doesn't truly recognize who this Jesus is. Let's read verse 4 and 5 again, and you'll see what I mean. When he had finished speaking, Jesus, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. We find that Peter calls Jesus master here. And to us, that might not mean much, but in the original wording, the Greek, there's this idea of general respect, like one would have for a teacher. That's all. Peter obeys Jesus, the teacher, out of respect. He knows him. He just let him use his boat to teach. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll do what you say, but that's all you are. You're just a teacher. And yet, after the catch of so many fish that their boats are beginning to sink, their nets are beginning to break after a night of not catching anything, and then this, the only explanation is divine power. And Peter's view of Jesus begins to shift completely. He recognizes who Jesus is because we read this in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. That's a change from master to Lord, and Luke does that on purpose because the wording here actually means someone who is supreme in authority. Peter goes from saying, hey, you're just a teacher. I just sort of have some respect for you to saying, hey, you are somebody who has supreme authority over all people and all things. After being faced with the reality of miraculous power, Peter recognizes just who Jesus truly is. And Luke echoes this fact as he continues to write. He shows this to the readers in chapters uh, 4 and 6. On either side of our story, we find miracle after miracle. And Luke shows us as we look back and read that this is a Jesus who has power over demons, a Jesus who commands supernatural forces, a Jesus who heals lepers, who heals people who are paralyzed. 
He's more than just a teacher. Yes, he deserves respect, but he also deserves so much more because he is supreme in authority over everything. Perhaps some of us are like the Peter of verse 5, though. Perhaps some of us just see Jesus as this historical figure and we haven't yet fully come to realize who he is. But if we look at the story of Job, we can begin to get a clearer picture of who it is that we're talking about here. You see, in the story of Job, we have a man who's really struggling. I mean, he has been dealt a bad hand. He loses his family, all of his family, all of his sons, all of his daughters. He loses his possessions, everything he owns. It all gets destroyed. He loses his health. He gets a painful sickness that brings him right up to the verge of death without actually killing him. All of these things go on, and Job, prior to this, would say, yeah, I know God, I follow God, but he begins to start questioning God's judgment. He begins to challenge God's just nature with everything that's going on. And at the end of the book, God finally arrives on the scene. And he says, really, who do you think you are to question me like that? So he begins to question Job, but in questioning Job, he reveals all of these things about his own nature. He says, I'm the one who laid the earth's foundation. I'm the one who gives orders to the morning and the dawn. I'm the one who knows where light and darkness reside. I'm the one who disperses lightning. I send it on its way. I'm the one who cares for the animals. I enable horses to jump and birds to fly. I'm adorned with glory and splendor. I'm clothed in majesty. The list goes on and on. But just like what we see in Peter in Luke 5, Job has a realization here. And he says this. He says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes, they've seen you. Job admits that he was speaking about some things that he didn't really understand. He knew God. There's 30 plus chapters in the book of him talking about God with his friends. But he had yet to truly recognize just who God was. But here's the really cool thing. All the things that we see about God and Job are actually true about Jesus. When Peter sees this miracle, he realizes, hey, this isn't just some rabbi teaching about God. This is God. Jesus is God. All of these things, that's, they apply to Jesus as well. And so the question here is, okay, how do we view Jesus? How do we know Jesus? Is he just a morally good teacher? Is he a historical figure, a crazed lunatic who started a cult? Or do we recognize him as the son of God? Do we view him as someone who will give us what we want when we pray? Someone who we believe in because our parents said so? Maybe a get out of hell free card? Or do we recognize him as the Lord of all creation? There's a great theologian that I like to read. Some of you guys might be familiar with him. His name is actually Joe Cartwright. Um, He's really put out some good works in the version comment section. Uh, but he said this the other day. He said, we should always check, check again, and triple check our understanding of who God is next to God himself. It wasn't just enough for Peter to know Jesus, to sort of have an understanding of Jesus. He had to recognize who Jesus truly was. We should never be content with our current understanding of Jesus, but we should always be in scripture, studying to figure out, okay, is what I think of Jesus, is that actually true when I read the scriptures and I see his grace and his forgiveness, his wrath, his holiness, his love? In order to follow Jesus, we have to recognize who he truly is. Second thing is this. In order to follow Jesus, we must recognize who we are. 
In order to follow Jesus, we must recognize who he is, but then we must recognize who we are. In verse 5, when Simon Peter saw this, the miracle, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Because not only did Peter recognize who Jesus was, but he also recognized who he was, a man of sin. As you guys probably guessed from my earlier story, I love games. I really love playing games, but not just video games. I don't just want to rot my mind staring at a screen. Um, I also love playing tabletop games. And when I was in college, I really got into a time period where I loved playing chess. I worked in the library. There was a chess board in the library. And so before it closed, my friends would often come in and we'd play chess together. And I love my friends. I, I really do, but they were not good at chess. They were, they were actually really bad at chess. And sorry if you guys are watching the stream, but it was true. And there was one friend in particular. I actually went on a 12-game win streak against him. And we joked about it all afterwards. He eventually beat me. But because of all this, I began to think, hey, Perry, you're pretty good at chess. I mean, I could take on everyone in the Mid-Atlantic Christian University Library, like all five people. So, yeah, I got some skill. But then one of my professors, who was probably about 60 and had four doctorates, heard that I played chess and he wanted to challenge me. He said, hey, Perry, let's play a game of chess sometime after class. And I said, yeah, I could probably hold my ground against them. Sure. You can probably guess what happened. I got destroyed. I mean, I just got absolutely destroyed. But you know what made it worse? After the game, he reset the board and proceeded to recount every single move of the game, pointing out everything I did wrong. I don't even know how he remembered that, but he did. And it made me realize, wow, you're really good. And so, Perry, you're really bad at this. You're not nearly as good as you thought. I suddenly recognized who I was in the face of seeing how good he was. When Peter recognizes just who Jesus is, how perfect and holy he is, he also recognizes his own nature. Peter recognizes his own sin and says, Lord, I, I don't even deserve to be in your presence. You've got to leave. I got a little too confident when playing chess, but it's really just a reflection of our human nature. I mean, as humans, we tend to be a little prideful. We tend to think too highly of ourselves and our talents and our abilities. And we can find this in pop culture, in our movies, our songs, and our books. We can see the idea that we don't need God. We're in control of our own lives. We're fine. If there's some kind of problem, we can fix it. And sometimes it just leads to an ego getting shattered in chess, but other times it leads us trying to navigate life based on our own wisdom, our own power, trying to find our own solutions, and where does that get us? When left to our own devices, we see, as a general trend, humans continuously fail to find joy. We see that society says, follow your own thoughts, because you're good enough to fix everything, but we also see that there's depression and anxiety and divorce and isolation and fear, financial ruin, abandonment, the list goes on and on. When we elevate ourselves, we see that this is the kind of stuff that's happening. But in the story, we see that Peter recognizes the true state of humanity. He says, hey, I'm a sinful man. You're good, you're perfect, God, but me, I'm not. Peter recognizes just who he is. If we flip over to the book of Isaiah, we see a similar thing as well. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and prophets often spoke on behalf of God, and so occasionally God would show them visions of things that they would then speak on. And Isaiah gets shown a vision one day. He sees the throne of God, 
God's sitting on the throne, and then angels begin to declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah's response to seeing this, when he sees the glory of the Lord, and all the angels praising him, he recognizes who he is. He says this in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It almost seems like Peter is echoing Isaiah here, doesn't it? They both recognize the truth of God's glory, and then they recognize who they are. And so the question is, how do you view yourself as your own God, as someone in control of your life who has all the answers, all the power, you don't need religion? Or do you view yourself as someone who will be fine once you die because, you know, you did more good than bad? How do, you, how do you view yourself? Because the fact is, we've all messed up. We have all sinned. We are made in the image of God, and he does declare us good, but sin is a reality. David says it this way. I was sinful at birth. I was sinful since the moment of my conception. Following Jesus requires recognizing just where our two places are at. He is great, he's holy, he's sovereign, and we're sinful. Returning to the story, we find that Peter has these two realizations, and then he says to Jesus, you need to leave. You're holy, I'm sinful, so you need to leave. You need to get out because I can't bridge this gap that exists between your righteousness and, and my rebellion, your holiness and my sin. There's nothing I can do about that, so you need to leave. But the great part here, the part that I absolutely love, my favorite part of this story, after this pretty sad revelation, sort of, is Jesus doesn't just leave. He doesn't say, you're right, Peter, you're right. I'm out, deuces. No, he says, come, follow me. You're right that you're sinful. You're right that I'm holy. There's a gap there, but that's okay. Come, follow me. The final thing that we must do in order to follow Jesus is to accept his truth and let it change us. Accept his truth and let it change us. And you say, Perry, what do you mean? What truth are you talking about? Jesus just said, come, follow me. What, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Well, in order to understand the truth that Jesus is actually giving Peter here, we have to understand how discipleship worked in the first century Jewish culture. You see, in those days, Jewish boys would attend their equivalent of elementary school. They wouldn't exactly have snack time and nap time, probably all the things that we do, finger painting. Uh, what they did was they studied the Torah, or the first five books of our Bible. Starting around age five, they would learn to read and write and recite the Torah. That was their education, was basically memorizing the Bible. Around the age of 12 or 13, they would stop going to this basically primary school, and they would go and learn the trade of their father. If their father was a carpenter, hey, what do you know? You're a carpenter now. If your father's a fisherman, it doesn't matter if you like to fish or not. You're going to be a fisherman. Um, and it was at this age the young boys would begin to end their formal education, and they would begin to settle into their lives routine. But there was also a secondary school, in Jewish culture after this primary school. And it was open to the public. The rabbis, the teachers, they would come and they would talk and teach and debate each other. And the public could come and listen, but not many people could actually study under these rabbis in this secondary school. But some could. A small amount of boys who were around 12 to 15 who had the passion and who had the knowledge of the scripture 
could choose to go to the secondary school, and they would dive even deeper into studying the Old Testament, and they would start to learn more about the prophets and other things. And the boys here, mind you, in the secondary school were, were really small. You had all the boys who had to go to primary school and learn stuff, but then most would go and start learning the father's trade, and a small percentage would go to the secondary school. But even a smaller percentage among that, the best of the best, only they had the chance to actually become a disciple. You see, when a young boy had finished school, they learned and they decided they wanted to be a disciple. They would find a rabbi that they wanted to be like, that they wanted to learn under, and they would say, may I follow you? The rabbi would observe them. Maybe he would say, you can hang out with me for a few days. I need to see some things. He might question the student. He would do something to observe the student. And after observing them, he would decide, based on the passion and the knowledge that he saw, if the student could follow them. And if he decided, yes, you know enough and you truly have a desire to do this, then the rabbi would say, yes, you may follow me. And it was at this point that they would become a disciple. But if they didn't, if they thought, mm, he doesn't know enough, he, he's, not, he's not knowledgeable enough, or no, he doesn't actually have enough passion or desire, he would say, no, you need to return to the trade of your father. And so why is this important? What am I saying here? Because in verses 2 and 3, we see that Peter is a fisherman. Peter was engaged in the trade of his father. So we don't have the details, but what that tells us is that if Peter asked to follow a rabbi, may I follow you, he was told no. No, you cannot. Return to the trade of your father. You are not good enough to follow me. And perhaps he never asked, but because of the structure of their society, he still would have been led to believe he wasn't good enough. He didn't have the required passion, knowledge, ability to become one of the great disciples who knows about God or eventually one of the great rabbis who knows about God and then to make his own disciples, he wasn't qualified. And so in this account, Luke is describing to us a Peter who recognizes I'm sinful, I'm also not good enough. And yet we find Jesus, who remember is a rabbi, but is also so much more, he has supreme authority, he looks at Peter and says, follow me, follow me. You recognize I'm holy, you're right. You're admitting you're sinful, yeah, I won't dispute that. You've been told you're not good enough, but you can still follow me. The truth that Jesus is giving to Peter here is that even in his sinful, not good enough state, he is loved and he's accepted. Society has this thing that it likes to do. Maybe you've noticed where it tells us the things that we should value. Looks, possession, wealth, social status, all of these various things. And when society says for years, these are the things that are important, these are the things that give worth, it can become easy to believe. And unfortunately, these misconceptions can often affect our relationship or our view of our relationship with God. If we believe that by earthly standards we're not good enough, then we can believe that we're not good enough to follow Christ either. But the same truth that Jesus gives to Peter, he also gives to us. He says, you can follow me. Yes, you're sinful. Your sin has created a gap, but that's not something you have to get drowned in anxiety about because I've crossed this gap that you couldn't bridge. So follow me. Here's my truth. The truth is that I came to earth to die for you. The truth is that Jesus, who, remember, we said was God, who had all those other qualities, supreme over everything, 
He chose to die for us. And the invitation for us now is to accept that truth and let it change us. Not because we're amazing, not because we can change, but because he can change us. And so the final question here is, what are you accepting as truth? That you're not good enough to have a relationship with God? That your current relationship with him is dependent upon yourself? Or do you recognize the truth that Jesus loves you and that he can change you? Perhaps you remember the Isaiah passage that we read earlier. Where he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Well, that vision actually continued. And what happened next was pretty cool. An angel comes and symbolically touches his mouth, his lips, with a piece of coal. And he says this. Isaiah is told, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Doesn't that sound like a truth that you would want to accept? I know it does for me. Apparently it must have for Peter as well because look at what he does in verse 11. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. We can put Peter's name in there. Peter pulled his boat up on the shore, left everything, and followed Jesus. This is just week one of our series, and so we're going to get to dive into what that all looks like and how that all played out in his life. But here we see that Peter left everything behind, his nets, his boats, his livelihood, everything that he had placed stock in before he left behind because he recognized the value of all those other things doesn't even come close to the truth that Jesus has just given me that he loves me and that I can follow him. And so the challenge that I'm presenting for us this week is to ask ourselves this question. Is there anything that I'm valuing more than Christ that I need to leave behind? Is there anything that I'm valuing more than Christ that I need to leave behind? Because that's what we see Peter do. He decides, hey, there's some stuff, but it doesn't compare to the value of Jesus and his love, so I'm going to leave it behind. Because the fact is, Jesus isn't just some sketchy horror movie character who's trying to get us to follow him so he can kill us. No, he's the God of the universe. And just as Peter learned, he loves us and he wants to change our lives. And my hope and my prayer for us is that we can realize that truth and come to accept it as well. Let's pray.